Hello and welcome to episode six of No Blueprint featuring Mo Clark. She is a multidisciplinary artist, artistic producer, educator, creatrix, and founder of the Nistamaquan. Did I pronounce that okay? Pretty good, actually. Nice, yeah. Not bad. And that's the, a transformative arts. And she is also the 2014 Poet of Honor. I also wanted to throw that in there too. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mo Clark. Thank tanse, you for being here. Tanse, everybody. Tanse nito tamak. Nitsiga san mo. Equa nigamope seo squeo. Equa sawi keno seo squeo. It's really great to be here um, with you today, Justin. So, I am actually in my place uh, in Ottawa. So I, I was uh, just actually going to you know, dive into that is to pay homage to the land that I'm on. I'm here on the Algonquin traditional territory of our relatives here. And uh, I'd also like to thank the creator for this moment where we get to connect on this platform. Uh, I'm so humbled and so grateful to be able to have these moments to hear stories from such incredible people. So I thank the creator for this journey. And I want to thank our audience for tuning in as well um, on all these different platforms. And uh, again, I, I appreciate you for being here. So, so I'm good. in uh, Jojage right now on the uh, unceded territory of the Ginyangahaga people. Been living here for 12 years. Um, so I just want to thank all of this beautiful heat that we've had. I don't know if it's really hot over there, but we've had some really beautiful sunny days and beautiful sunrise and sunsets. And um, just always, always really grateful um, to be hosted on this land in such a good way and uh so good shout out and much gratitude to all of the uh, mohawk people and all of the other indigenous people who are keeping these lands well and healthy and uh and our allies and other kin who are helping in their ways as well yes i remember the first time i met you it was actually during the Rita Joe, I lost my talk project with the National Arts Center. And that was the first time I crossed paths with you at uh, Audio Valley when we were recording with the young people. Yeah. And I, I arrived and you were already there. And like the last time I saw those young people was in their First Nation community in Kitty Ganzibi. And they were a shy bunch and we did the whole uh, songwriting workshop. And then when I came into the studio, I was like, who is this cool human being? Got all these amazing young people in harmony, like singing. You had your drum out, dropping the beat. I was like, this is amazing. And then I was introduced to Mo Clark. And that was the first time that we actually met in human flesh. Yeah, right on. I remember that. That was a really magical moment. And uh, I remember actually connecting one of the youth who was part of that project, Morgan, um, is also like one of my Sundance cousins, you know, so we, we danced together for a couple years. Um, but it was really nice to finally be welcomed into Kitaganzi B. So, you know, kind of picking up where you had brought the youth to in terms of songwriting and using Rita Joe's um, poem. Um, I love that piece. That's like, I've used that piece in a lot of different workshops. Um, but it was great to be able to go there to work with them, to work with them with another youth too, like Craig Commanda. Nice. Uh, who joined me for that journey to kind of help out and, and, you know, acquire some skills and kind of discover his voice a little more as like a emerging musician and, and facilitator. Um, 
yeah, and then to to have them record that epic piece, like all those other youth across Turtle Island, uh, was really great. But the yeah. lyrics that they they came oh, up man. with and the Anishinaabe that they brought in there, Ishko Day is in my heart. Right. I think yes, I was super exactly. inspired, and I was like, Incredible. wow, this guy really brought them through like a beautiful process. So. It was crazy because it happened so quickly, and it was just in a classroom, and like we did two two verses and the chorus in like a two hour time span so i was blown away by that you know and as an artist i'm sure you understand the songwriting process can vary so oh, yeah. it was amazing yeah. and the second time and, and the second time i met you but the first time i've actually seen you perform live was at the inspire awards i believe it was 2019 mm -hmm. and i became a fan at that point i was like she is too cool and I was just blown away. So that was the first time that I seen you perform live. And what an amazing stage and event to see you perform as well. Like it was so cool. That was so, that was so much work. That was such a beautiful performance. And I just want to give a shout out to like the two collaborators that were there with me, Nina Sigalowitz, the amazing, amazing Inuvia Lut Dene throat singer, a uh, longtime collaborator and sister. And my, you know, forever collaborator Mar Marino Vasquez um, who's from Mexico originally and uh, who basically is like the man about town when it comes to music and uh, I actually brought him up to Chisasabi and Umuriak and Kujarapik um, a couple winters ago to do workshops and that's kind of when we started to collaborate and, and to work with youth and whatnot and um, yeah, Indespire was amazing. And amazing. actually, I was reminded of it earlier today because I saw that uh, Sage Paul Cardinal uh, has just been facilitating a fashion clothing line in, involving Indigenous artists and visual artists and creators, fashion designers um, with Simons, this huge like organization met, you know, show or store here in um, here in Montreal and in Quebec. Oh, that's and Evan Ducharme, an amazing Métis designer who originally was, I was supposed to wear his clothing for Indespire, wow. um, but then the FedEx package got lost. And so like, you know, the day of, or like, or the morning of or something, it was like, we're at the shopping mall, like trying to find outfits. I was with Michelle Thrush, like one of my good aunties. And we're, we find ourselves in all these stores trying on all these like, super lavish dresses <laughs> like I was like who am I what am I doing like I'm used to wearing you know kind of whatever I've got sure. and um but then with the outfit that I had I had like a headset and I had in ears and there was nowhere to put the battery pack so I remember that we had to like Lara Croft it so I had like <laughs> one of the like monitor packs attached to my left hip and another attached to my right and oh I just felt goodness. so so badass but you know all those behind the scenes and like the drama that sometimes you know surrounds these seemingly kind of like finite quick moments in time but the amount of energy and bodies and collaboration and just like spontaneity that 
that's required, you know, to pull things off like that. It's always amazing. And I, I love that you brought that up because I think that's a big part of what I, I'm hoping to achieve with this No Blueprint series is to also allow people to get a real understanding of what goes into the work that a lot of artists do. And it's not just the amazing stage presence that you see in that final result. So I'm glad you you touched on that really briefly. And before we really dive too deep into this um, session here, I wanted to just check in with you and see how you're doing through these COVID times. I mean, every day is a new day. Every moment is a new moment. Um, I'm actually today, like the last couple of days, I've been doing taxes. Um, probably the least nice part about being an independent artist, independent worker. Um, so shout out to like anybody who's good with numbers. Um, Cause I, it just like, it feels like such a triggering piece for me. Um, but then, you know, like everything alongside these sort of more grueling kind of like, I'll even call it like soul work, you know, like the long nights of the soul. That's what taxes feel like for me. It's like existential crisis at least once a year. Um, <laughs> but then there's also like the beauty of some of the relationships that have been formed and activated um, during COVID that I really feel like I've been given the opportunity to reach out and to make contact, perhaps through an easier um, perspective or, or um, a quicker uh, relationship building. Um, and it's not to say that like relationships still don't require nourishment and time and um, commitment, but I've been able to, you know, connect with some really incredible elders, knowledge keepers, educators, artists, creators, youth um, throughout COVID, uh, through some of the digital platforms and ways in which we've been trying to take some of our land-based teachings and performance work and bring it into, um, into the virtual, virtual world. So that's been really inspiring. And I feel like that's been one of the key things that has really helped me to like feel a sense of continuum and a sense of uh, shared connection and, and relationship that these relationships don't stop just because we can't necessarily meet one another physically. Mm. And so what are ways that we can really pull from, you know, like an indigenous futurism of wow. what are ways that we can dream um, different ways of being in relationship with one another. Yet, I will say that having the mountain of, you know, Montréal and a lot of really beautiful urban parks within walking distance and now biking distance has been like a total lifesaver for me too. Um, and I just really kind of reiterating teachings from elders, you know, like of how we're able to observe and watch the cycles and be more a part of the cycles as they're happening. And so existing in the same territory and the same land for a longer period of time and not being the kind of touring artist, traveling artist, like go, right. go, go, kind of hustling a lot. Mm -hmm. It's sort of allowed me the opportunity to also kind of reconnect with my own territory and my own body in different ways and realizing that I've been pretty burnt out and needing to eat healthy and spend more time outside and just move about more slowly. Um, 
I can be a pretty kind of quick paced person. So it's nice to go for really slow walks and it's been nice to watch the ice melt and the trees and the flowers bud and the sounds of the birds pick up and the geese return. Um, You know, I, I have moments where I wish I was way more out on the land and I could go hunting and trapping and some of those pieces. So, yeah. That's amazing. Slow down. And I think I I wanted to just kind of encourage the audience that this is going to be a really interesting conversation for me to have because a lot of Mo Clark's work is very much connected to the land and the environment around you. So to hear you talk about allowing yourself to slow down and watch the cycles is an amazing reminder of restoring that relationship you have with mother earth and your environment and the land around you. So I appreciate you saying that. And indigenous futurism, I think is also a big reality. And I was listening to a conversation um, on a interview podcast I was watching yesterday and it had to do about retail. It's a little bit off topic, but um, they were just saying that because of COVID, it actually helped push a lot of um, people into the technologies that were already going to be um, part of the norm in the future anyways. It kind of just sped up that entire process. And so it is really interesting times where technology is also readily available and accessible to us during these COVID times. But as well, it's a moment to disconnect and reconnect with the land, which I think is really important. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing a lot of that. I think that's really important to hear that. Mm So my first question I wanted to, to ask you is, is just more of your upbringing and, you know, where you grew up, um, you know, where are your parents from, where are your grandparents from? Um, well, as I said in my very brief intro, Nitotsin uh, Um so Treaty 7, uh, otherwise known as At the Elbow in English or Calgary. Um, that is my birthplace and where I was born and raised and um, so I really, I really consider, um, you know, I kind of do this sometimes when I think about where I'm from, because it's like you look to the West and you see the Rocky Mountains and the foothills and you get those really epic long sunsets and you look to the East and you got a lot of flat lands, you know, a lot of prairie and you get those really beautiful sunrises. And so, you know, that landscape, this sort of like meeting place um, and, you know, it's all through the, the river and the river valleys that come down from the glacial um, waters in the mountains and they, they spill across the land. And so, you know, that's my, that's my first home uh, when I consider kind of like where I come from. Um, and, and then, you know, I also spent a lot of time in, in the southern part of Alberta, so in the Cypress Hills, and that's a really beautiful, interesting landscape, too, where, you know, it's so, so flat. Um, you know, you drive just towards Medicine Hat, um, and, you know, you can basically, I remember driving there once, and you're, you're approaching, and you can kind of see the wall of rain as it's coming towards you, and then, you know, you just get hit with it, and then it kind of keeps going, so it's like those really, really epic, expressive skies, and then the Cypress Hills is this beautiful landscape 
that the Métis moved through the Blackfoot, the Cree, um, a lot of nations were, were moving through and, and following the bison, plus following most those through that landscape. And, and it wasn't hit by the last glacial period. So there's a lot of artifacts and a lot of traces in the land as well um, from all of those generations of, you know, occupation by humans and movement of animals. And so those two lands, I would say, are sort of like, those are the lands that have really informed who I am. And, uh, and that's really, you know, when I think about what it means to be Apatawigosisan, like what it means to be Métis, Nehyo, um, Norwegian, French, British, you know, those are, those are my ancestral lineages. Um, I really feel like, you know, part of my journey uh, to connect more with my indigenous uh, roots and lineage has also been because I've wanted to connect more with the land and, and really understand how is this body a continuum of that body and how is that body a memory and like a site of all those relationships and how is this? So, so how are those things kind of working together? So sometimes when I think about, you know, the Métis, like we've got the infinity is, is our symbol. And, you know, I've often heard it expressed that, well, it's because we have European and indigenous, you know, kind of lineage and pathways. And so it's like this infinite ancestry. And I also see it as this, this continued reciprocity between, you know, us and the land, us and the animals, you know, so there's this, there's this constant acknowledgement and this constant kind of connection uh, between those, those pieces. Um, so I, I made tea from, from my dad's side. Um, so his great grandma was Nehio, um, Marie Cardinal, and she married a French man. And from those relationships, um, you know, are my Métis relatives from out of the Red River, so Treaty 1, Saint-François-Xavier. Um, but then, of course, when Scrip and, you know, the Red River Rebellion happened, they got pushed out and into Manitoba and then southern Saskatchewan, kind of through Katepwa, and then down into Manitoba and then eventually arrived back up in Alberta. And so um, my father's family is uh, mixed uh, Métis and his mother was Norwegian. Um, and so her mother came over from Norway. And so, you know, she really instilled a lot of that kind of like strong Scandinavian, um, you know, really grounded in her beliefs. Um, and she married my grandpa, you know, this Métis, pretty broke, um, you know, pretty like not down and out, but just like, you know, didn't have a lot of, you know, income and whatnot. And so then they started uh, a farm. And so my dad grew up really on the land. And so he was hunting. And so when I was little, you know, I'd go hunting with him. And those were the grandparents that we'd spend every summer with. So a lot of my kind of education when it comes to land-based learning and land-based understanding and those ways of being come from that side of the family and camping and spending summers down in the Cypress Hills and picking Saskatoons and tracking for animals. But it wasn't until after uh, my grandfather passed away when I was 16 that uh, one of my dad's cousins started to do the genealogy and started to look at script records and documents from the Métis Nation and found documents of this, um, of these, you know, our relations of our, our Métis relatives. 
And so that's when I started to do that, that work from my own kind of learning and, and desire to want to connect. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's been an ongoing process. And I definitely feel like I've found a lot of family through that. And it's also been a lot of struggle because um, my mom, my mom's side are British, um, French, and so, you know, very kind of white, uh, very settler, um, you know, for lack of a better term, slightly waspy, um, which I don't even know, like, exactly where that term comes from. But my grandfather's mother, um, actually, she was a writer and a poet. And uh, a couple of years ago, one of my mom's cousins gave me a book of all of her writing. Wow. And in this book, on one of the first pages is her detailed narrative description of when they arrived from Ontario to Saskatchewan in the middle of the plains and they received, you know, access to their homestead and land. And she specifically remembers that in the northeast corner of their plot, there was this bison wallow. And so there was like, a, you know, a big wallow in the land where the bison would have, you know, rolled and shook and wow. a stone where they would have rubbed against. And she, she recites, you know, remembering to find tufts of buffalo hair. And she remembers the lines through the grasses of where the buffalo would have walked and would have moved. And so it's, it was interesting to receive that and to sort of think of these two different, you know, well, multiple lineages, um, but kind of how and where do they meet on the land? Mm -hmm. And what's that history of settler, uh, colonial takeover and violence? And then what's the history of being pushed out of having trap lines relationship to the land and then kind of being um, exiled from that, from those relationships. And so how did those live also then within me? Um, and my, my mom's mom, um, my grandma, Alice, who's my last remaining grandparent, um, she's 89. She's a wise crack, you know, she's out, you know, driving around like, you know, <laughs> vulnerable people like not at all like she's just like oh the hairdressers are gonna be open again I'm gonna go on Monday morning you know no point in calling so <laughs> you know she sends me these hilarious cards in the mail That's and so she grew cool. up she grew up in in Medicine Hat um so in southern Alberta um and her family comes from the the Lausanne like so French um French so from so from France um yeah, so that's that's oh, a bit sure. about me, and I'm the middle of three children, so I have two sisters, and so you know we were we were all pretty artistic and and pretty kind of engaged when we were younger, but we were raised in the suburbs of Calgary. Um, I mean, ninety eight percent of Calgary is a suburb, so it's not difficult. Um, but you know, I think we really had a lot of education through song and through singing uh, with family, because uh, that was always part of our relating mm. and part of our gatherings. Uh, we would always sing with my grandparents. And so I always attribute like my origin to song from that place of it being part of my family lineage. Mm. And not to say that my family is, you know, a bunch of artists or anything. Like my dad was a technical engineer for TELUS and my mom was a, you know, 
biology and hematology, you know, working in the labs and stuff. And so they're, you know, very, very rational, you know, people. So I think having me as their daughter was, well, continues to be quite challenging, you know? Um, Amazing. Fascinating. No, I think it's extremely fascinating to hear that you've kind of actually answered my next question in a way as well, because it was it was about, you know, when did you learn about your identity and who you are as a human being? And you've kind of already discussed that it was through learning the stories of your ancestors, your your family lineage. And as a result, it helped you understand who you are and, uh, you know, the, that beginning process of your identity. So is there any other things that you wanted to bring up in, in, in the phrase of the question I'm asking now, it's like, when did you start learning about your identity? Was that an ongoing process of, you know, learning about your, your grandparents and where they're from, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think it coming through my grandparents is, you know, that, that's something that's kind of, I guess, came through just more like, subliminally when I was growing up because I spent so much time with my dad's parents um you know with and without my my parents being there like they would also take us every summer and we would go and we'd, we'd stay with them for a couple weeks and you know they had this huge garden and um I just remember eating my grandmother's you know garden strawberries and like the these beautiful tiny red strawberries and so, you know, particularly at this time of year, you know, those those memories and those sort of relationships of how do we continue to build relationships with the land, even when we're not, you know, living out in the countryside or whatever. And what are the small and sometimes simple ways that we can continue to take care of those relationships? Um, but I feel like, you know, that question of identity, there's so many identities that yeah we are part of in so many different communities and ways so in which true. we belong. And so I think my, you know, my Métis, like the Otepimsewak, you know, the, the, the free people, you know, that's, that's one of kind of my, one of the parts of me. And there's also, you know, very much like the suburban city girl part of me. And there's also very much the quiet child part of me and the more outgoing verbose. And, and so I feel like, through my family, I've learned a lot, but then also through my chosen family, mm. I've learned a lot. And through being a creator and through being an artist and really owning, like I am an artist mm. and eventually coming to a place where it's like, it's okay to be an artist and you don't have to like, you know, study biology and become a doctor and then just dabble in arts on the side because I feel like that's what I saw with my uncle like my my dad's brother and even my grandfather you know they're both artists like they were you know carvers like amazing immaculate wood carvers I remember going and visiting my uncle who was you know very much like he's classic Métis you know kind of living out of a trailer on the side of a river you know his own little road allowance because you know, he's kind of a vagabond and he didn't really like fit into society. And so his, his happy place was, was being on the edge of the river and carving, you know, these amazing, beautiful, like Lazarus walking sticks and birds and, you know, whatever kind of came to his imagination. And so I think it, it's also through those kind of ways of witnessing and, and observing how people survived, mm. whether that was, 
my actual family or my chosen family. And through these practices of survival and of thriving, I think that, you know, really reverberated and that kind of started to settle in me that the ways in which I create joy and I create meaning and I understand the world, like that's actually how I can live, Mm. you know, and that can be creative and I might struggle at times and survival looks many different ways throughout that process. But I think through having those continued relationships and kinships and, and, and seeing that, you know, these are healthy and these can stay strong, that develops a certain level of trust. And mm. so it's that trust in who I am and how I'm constantly transforming in relationship to um, who and, and what is around me. Um, that's kind of kept me alive. That's amazing. Like your journey of self-discovery is the form of how you can survive as a way to kind of understand what you're saying. I think that's beautiful. And another thing that you brought up in, in your story there and in, in your journey here is, is that you spent a lot of time singing songs with your grandparents. So I wanted to know, like, what kind of music did Mo Clark grow up listening to as a young person? Because you're such a multidisciplinary. Oh my gosh! Right, and it's you know it's 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 the songs that you know I I sing sometimes when I'm like oh you know they're really light beautiful songs like the other day I was with my friend and her daughter and she didn't want to put her shoes on, and uh, one of the songs my grandpa used to always sing, put your shoes on Lucy don't you know you're in the city. Put your shoes on, Lucy, don't you know it's quite a pity that Lucy must go barefoot wherever she goes because she likes to feel the wiggle of her toes. Hey. So it was like just <laughs> these, these kind of sweet songs that I think mm. my grandparents kind of grew up with, you know, and, um, and they were the songs that they were probably hearing on the radio or, you know, the jingles and, and those kinds of things. So a lot of them are kind of short and sweet. Um, but they were kind of perfect songs to learn because we could sing them around the campfire. We could sing them while we were walking in the woods and they were easy to remember and easy to pick up and, and very melodious, you know, um, interesting. and, and, you know, so, so the songs that I grew up singing aren't, aren't really related to ceremony in that way, or, you know, to Métis, uh, you know, kind of lineage, but they're related to my lineage. And I think it's through that, that developing mm. that relationship that, you know, they still felt like ceremony and, you know, singing and song was always ceremony. And, you know, I, I think sometimes it can be really easy to fall into this trap that like ceremony needs to be, you know, you get all your gear on and you, you know, you remove your body of water and you go into a sweat lodge or you do something really dramatic and epic and it's so much energy. And, and I think it's like, you know, what are the ways in which we're constantly creating rituals and ceremonies and what are the ceremonies that have always been a part of our life that maybe we haven't acknowledged um, have been ceremonies, but mm. that connect us to those teachings, you know, right. so you talked about those, those grandfather teachings as like kind of a, a way to approach this conversation and whether right. or not we ever say love, truth, respect, mm. you know, all of those things. It's like, we are, we're moving 
with those those embodiments as we are interacting with one another and and so I think as artists as well it's like how do those things become the seeds that we we move around the world and then how do they become roots and then Mm. where do those roots connect with others roots Mm. and so we we grow those kinship those creative kinships in those communities through the tools that we were given when we were younger Right. Or through the tools that we imagined, you mm. know, we could we could have. Or that makes a lot of sense because you're making me reflect on, you know, I grew up listening to a lot of reggae, uh, Motown. I have oh. a brother on my on my dad's side, and he was a DJ, and so I was super young. I don't even remember, but I must have been like 14 or something younger than that even. And uh, he snuck me a cassette tape. For those who don't know what a cassette tape is beyond their time, that's okay. We don't got to go into it. But I played this cassette tape and it was like, Biggie, 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 can't you see? Like notorious big. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it was like my mom came in the room, was like, what you listening to? And it kind of got into the thing. There's a little bit of cursing on the on the cassette, right? But um, shortly after, you know, being introduced to like rap and hip hop and P Diddy, just from, you know, hanging out with my brother, um, my dad said something to me that stuck with me and it, it made me think of it when you said how music and can connect different teachings and, you know, connecting that to ceremony in a way he mentioned, he said to me, he was like, be careful the music that you listen to, because it can take you on a journey. And I think telling me that at such a young age, I started to be more cognitive of the type of music that I was listening to. And I mean, my whole life as a young person listening to Motown and Michael Jackson and, you know, these these Uh, artists all have an incredible message all, all the time and a beautiful story. And so, you know, my dad telling me that as an artist, I was when I became like, I would say like early teenage years, maybe a little bit older, you know. 17 18 years old um i started to get into rap music obviously like one of my first rap albums was uh was ice cube oh and, my god <laughs> you know it was just so gangster right but i didn't understand the historical context of where right. he's coming from and all that stuff i just wanted something cool i could listen to but as i got older it was like i kept hearing rap music with so much cursing and you know, music that is not, I can't relate to and neither can my peers in a way. It's just not the upbringing that we had. And so that was one of the reasons why I became an artist was because I wanted to make music with a message, with something positive in it. And so my entire music career, you can you could do the facts check, like every album has a message and every song has a purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when me becoming an artist started for me. And that was kind of what I wanted to ask you was like, when did the journey to become an artist start for Mo Clark? I just want to say, like, I just think it's so funny thinking back to cassette tapes. Like, right. Oh you got to use your pinky to rewind it. You got to used to drive this 1982 Malibu. It was like, you know, again, like family heirlooms that you mm. may or may not want to acquire. Like this car was older than me. And so I would drive to and from art school because I studied visual art in Calgary at the Alberta College of Art and Design. And I had this old cassette tape, like, well, I had a whole bunch of them that my dad had recorded from vinyl to cassette. Oh, what? And he used one of those, like, you know, those label makers where, like, right. you punch the letters in and then you peel the little part off and then you stick it on, right? So, like, I had all of these tape cassettes and, like, just, you know, everything, like, Beatles, Stones, you know, a lot of rock and roll. 
but one of the tapes was the band, The Last Waltz. So like Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, and they accompanied like Muddy Waters and Joni Mitchell mm. and Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And, wow. and there was this one Joni Mitchell song on that album and it's her singing Coyote. And it's funny because then later on, I end up writing a piece yes. about Coyote and calling True. it Coyote, you know, right. almost as like a subtle like homage to Joni Mitchell, who I think nice. is just a phenomenal lyricist. Her and Buffy St. Marie, they mm. kind of go up there, you know, in my mind of like, these are, you know, the, the folk artists, the lyricists who like, I feel really change things, you know, them and Nina Simone. Mm. Um, and right at the beginning of the recording of this Joni Mitchell song, I don't know where they had recorded it, like where in the audience the recording person was situated, but, you know, Robbie Robertson announces and up next, one of our best buds, you know, one of our best friends, Joni Mitchell. And right after all you hear is like, everybody's clapping. Then you hear, all right, <laughs> like it's really loud, you know, like really present. And to me, it's like those little moments of energy and mm. of exchange where like you feel the power of like art and of creativity and connectivity and how dynamic it is. And, and I really, I love that being an artist, you know? And I, I often recite that this, this one time when I was performing, I think I was like eight years old and we used to travel around to like old folks' homes and we would sing and dance. I was in this little dance group called Kids Are Music. And it was one of the girls I played soccer with who was on my soccer team, her mom and sister, like they were really into music. And so I joined this group and, uh, and I had a solo um, in one of the performances and it was Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> singing, uh, It Had To Be You. And so I was wearing this like little mini tuxedo with like, you know, the little penguin tails and I had right. this cane and like a little top hat. And I remember I would Perfect. do this like final spin and I'd spin around my cane. And then the very last note, it had to be you. Mm -hmm. And I would point the cane into the audience. And on this one day that we were at this old folks home, this little old granny in the front row, she reaches down and she picks up her cane and she points it back at me. And that moment has forever stuck with me that, you know, there's, there's so much power and there's so much love and there's so much connection and music and art and performance and song and dance and, you know, any form of creation, like it's going to reach a part of people that so many other things can't. And to be an active participant right. in that connection and in that reciprocity, again, you know, it's like when you go walking into the woods and, you know, you kind of feel maybe you're, sort of alone and then as you start to walk you start to hear the, the trees and then you you know hear the woodpecker and you see the woodpecker and then you know a little you know porcupine or whatever walks near you and and you start to you know kind of soften into this relationship that is constant and so I think for me like I was I was pretty quiet mm. figure um, very sensitive like little being when I was young. And so I think it was through singing that I could sort of take on this energy of connection and of expressing a deeper part of me. And it's funny because performance can be very vulnerable. Oh, big time. 
Um, and so then, you know, moving then from that into performing my own lyrics and right. my own songs, that's a whole other practice and a whole other process. True. And, and I've had my highs and my lows, you know, because um, I think that there's also sometimes this mechanism, not sometimes, often, where then as an artist, you kind of get used to having a feedback system or having mm. a response. And so if the response isn't exactly what you expect or want, then like, have you, have you given what they needed? And, you know, is the relationship okay? And am I, I okay? And yeah. am I still worthy enough? And do I belong? And, and then if you get a lot of success, it's like, oh, am I worthy of the success? And wow. like, don't they know that like, I'm actually really insecure and like, right. I freak out sometimes and like, I don't, I don't have my shit together, you know, mind my language. But so I, I think there's these funny kind of, you know, contracting, mm. expanding energies of being in that practice of, you know, relating and of opening yourself up to something that is, you know, very much outside, but then that kind of comes through us. Right. And, um, no, it's cool. I think that was fascinating to hear you share because you, uh, I was reflecting on the impact of how music can change a human being, whether you're participating it, participating in it yourself, or you're even just witnessing it. The impact of music is so significant on human beings in general. And it makes me think about, you know, the next question I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I spent three years of my life working at Wabano, which is an Aboriginal health center. I was there as a youth diversion coordinator. So I worked with young people um, in conflict with the law. And in my time there, I worked with, you know, some youth that were in, you know, high security uh, detention centers. And so we would go there uh, every other week and just to check in. And I remember, you know, we did some poetry with Albert Dumont, who's a, you know, Algonquin elder here in the Ottawa region. And that was just so cool to like hang out with Albert Dumont in a detention center, trying to connect with these young people and give them a sense of purpose and something to mix up their day. But there was a moment where one of the youth was actually really good at writing lyrics. And the message that he was speaking of was really inspiring because it talks about where he's at and the journey that he wants to be on. And so I wanted to nurture that gift. And that's something that I've always done my entire life is try to nurture the gifts of our young people. And so I asked the security if it was cool that I bring Wabano's little homemade studio into a detention center. And that's the, you can't just do that. You can't just pull yeah. up to yeah. a high security detention center with a studio and work with one youth and have them record where everybody else is kind of watching or knowing this is taking, taking place. So it was such a significant moment, but the impact that that had on that young people was so significant. And my time at Wabano, I'll, I'll never forget. There's so many little stories, but you yourself has, have also worked with young people in high security facility centers and working with youth. So why is that something important for you to do? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've been thinking about them a lot. Mm. Um, I mean, I think about them all the time. I think it's incredible how quickly we can develop these really intimate connections with, uh, with others when we're given the opportunity to connect from a, a 
different part of ourselves than just the habituated role play, you know, good student, bad student, um, you know, child that gets good grades, child get that's, gets bad grades, the one who doesn't listen, the one who's, you know, not loud enough, the one who's too loud, you know, there's, there's so much programming. And, uh, you know, so going into these different facilities and just trying to meet these youth for who they are, um, not who they think they are, not who they think they need to be, not who they told they are or aren't, uh, but to try and move into uh, a positionality that is really like it's circular, you know, where it's, it's really like, let's, let's all kind of move through this in whatever pace feels right. And um, so a lot of the youth that I've worked with, um, there's a facility here in Montreal where a lot of um, Inuk boys, Inuit boys um, and girls from the North, um, from Nunavik um, are brought uh, for like the kind of, I guess like family child justice system and so I work with actually the Quebec Writers Federation. Um, so they originally hired me to go in and, and do poetry writing. And um, I started working there and with these youth. Um, I mean, I started working in this program ages ago and don't have like training in like, you know, youth counseling or, you know, conflict resolution or any of those things. But I sometimes feel like there's certain artists and certain roles and, and ways that we just learn through being creative and like going through those dark nights of the soul and doing that transformative work that mm -hmm. there are different levels and, and capacities of like empathy and, and skill that it's really, I mean, it's, it's part of our ways, like storytelling and just listening and sitting with one another and sharing that's so key. Um, and so I've been able to work with these youth and we do, storytelling, we do spoken words, uh, we write songs together. I brought, I bring my looping pedal in and, you know, I, I always break the rules. Like, you know, I, I bring food, I brought the maple water, you know, when it was springtime and they never had it. And, you know, I bring them jerky cause I'm like, wow, they must really miss country food. And um, I remember bringing my looping pedal in and one of the boys, he's, you know, was quite a bit quieter. And, you know, I could kind of tell his conditioning was like, you know, you're bad and you're not good. And a lot of these boys have that, you know, um, but he was really quiet in most of the sessions. But in this one particular session, we pulled out the looping pedal and, you know, started to do some hip hop and some beatboxing. And then it came to be that we needed to make goose call sounds. And this one boy, he knew like, two or three different goose call sounds. Wow, his moment so to shine. We recorded these goose call sounds into the looping pedal and we mixed those together. Oh, and man. then after he recorded the sound of a rifle. And wow. so then we had the rifle sound and then the goose calls would go away and then we'd bring the goose calls back in and then we'd bring the rifle in. And so, you know, I think for me, it's like, how can we use art and how can I use these tools that I use as a way for connecting to my territory, to my lineage, to the land? How can I use those with the youth in that same way? Because I think ultimately, you know, so many people who are experiencing dislocation from the land, 
um, alienation from, you know, ancestral practices, cultural teachings, language, you know, transmission, mm. um, you know, then these social problems have come in and a lot of, you know, violence and a lot of like, you know, repression and, and a lot of substance abuse. And I really think that it's because, you know, we've lost, we've lost those relationships with the land. And mm. so to use poetry and music and song as a way of like re-earthing our experiences mm. and maybe grieving that we've been um, ruptured and we've been dislocated and, and, you know, instead of like, we don't mm. always need to be violent, um, but how can we express that violence through other sounds and through, wow. you know, writing and language and drawings. Um, and so I haven't been into the, to the facility in a while because um, of COVID, but I Sundance and I, I dance for those boys, you know, mm. like they're, they're forever in my, my prayers, you know, and they're forever now a part of my kinship. And even mm. when I don't get to see them and, and, you know, receive updates from them, I just, I always, you know, have them in my, in my prayers, all of the youths that I've worked with, you know, and there's been so many exceptional youths. Respect, honestly. Um, you know, what's interesting is like, I've never actually considered the journey of creating a, a project, a song or an album as a form of mourning you know, of like getting that out. And when you just finished saying that, I couldn't help but think of some of the youth that I've worked with in the studio and the, the lyrics they make, but putting it into a positive outlet, how it's changed their life because they were able to grieve in a good way, like in a healthy way. And at the same time, share that story. What's interesting about that from what I'm learning is that it's also dangerous. Because if you're re-performing those songs and you're constantly hearing those songs when you're grieving or mourning, it can kind of re-trigger you again as you, as you continue your life journey. And so I think it's really important, I think, for artists to create music that will also inspire them, even when you're in moments of grieving and you really are pissed off and angry. But take that as an opportunity to tell yourself something that you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that can really help your progress as an artist, because there's a lot of young people who get into the, the rap game, I'll say more specifically, that have these really triggering pasts, and they're constantly in that loop because that's the music that they're making. So I think uh, in that journey of healing, it's really interesting to understand, you know, when you, where, where you put your, your energies and your mourning and your grieving, whether that's through ceremony or through music be mindful of that, you know, and be intentional of that. And uh, I think you can really create some beautiful things because music, man, it impacts people's lives, you know, in yeah. a big way, like this world would not be the same without music and oh our young people use that as a tool, you know, I think it's incredible. And you brought up your loop pedal. I think that that's perfect. That's what that's kind of, that's the next question I want to ask you is like, you use a loop station in a lot of your performances um, when did you start using that as part of your creative process? When did you get introduced to the loop station? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel like I just want to, I want to reflect on what you sure. just said. Anything, of course. Like really, um, it's really important to, to discuss that too, you know, like 
I think that writing and performance can be grief work. Mm. Uh, I think it can be very like healing and ceremonial. Um, and I think that, you know, when we do that, that work, that it's important to do that in relationship to elders or therapists mm. or kin who can also um, support and who can also help to hold the space that is required um, to, to bring that work forward. And mm. I think when we, when we don't have that, that's when it can become really risky because it can re-stimulate um, trauma, re-stimulate those emotions. Um, and I think that's really important too, because I think that's also part of grieving. It's like, we're never fully done and we're never like fully healed, but it's like each time that we conjure those words, that experience, it's like, we might be slowly like releasing that much more of the trauma, that much more of kind of the impact yes. and allowing space for new vibrations and like new energy and new love to kind of enter those spaces that maybe get stuck. And so mm. like through the expressing of them, they start to loosen. Mm. Yet I also feel like we have a responsibility as artists, as facilitators, as people going through that process to know when it's the right time to share that and when maybe it's not the right space to share that. And if we are going to share that, that we're not only creating, you know, kind of a remembering in our own bodies, but we're also possibly inspiring or, you know, maybe opening up a wound that someone else has. And that can be really healing too. And I think there's also a responsibility that goes in there. And so, you know, whenever possible, I think that's why I often like I use medicines and, and I like to smudge and, you know, I like to call in and I call in those supports and I call in those ancestors and I have my water, you know, like water right. is like one of the best witnesses, one of the best healers, mm. you know, and, and when I need to, I have my, my community and my elders. And so uh, I think, you know, in those workshops, it's also reiterating how important those relationships are um, Amazing. and that they're ongoing. You know, yeah, we don't exactly. just write a piece and then it's done. It's right. like we forever belong to that piece and we are responsible for that song, for those lyrics, for what that is, you know, and each time we perform it, we bring it to life, we reanimate it. Mm. And that's why these medicine songs that have been passed on for it, generations you know and some of yeah. them just being dreamed and remembered now right, right. because there's that, those opportunities and these songs are old and they right. carry energy and power mm. and power can be incredibly healing and incredibly inspiring and power can be incredibly difficult and incredibly like you know um rupturing right um so this, look we're gonna we're gonna fast forward through that loop pedal question okay because look what i find incredible about you is like i spent so much time listening to you and and uh hearing a lot of your presentations you've done like the one that you did at tedx montreal that was such an incredible you know presentation performance where you spoke about your story and your truth and then you also did a performance and there was so much involved in that but i think 
just because of time, like we've already flown by through an hour of time, if you believe it or not, which is incredible. I think that's amazing and a testament to how much intelligence you carry, how much wisdom you carry, story that you you carry, and how much you share and how that's a, an artifact. And I remember you you bringing that up in one of your your talks about, and I wanted to get into that, but before I do, I wanted to at least um, play a clip if I can from that performance. So I have it set up. I know it's super awkward sometimes to see yourself perform, but I really <laughs> just kidding. You know, but I really need um, our audience to catch a vibe of Mo Clark because, in my opinion, I feel she's still underrated. Like you're such an incredible artist, and so I wanted to show a clip that kind of helps our audience catch a vibe of of the capacity of Mo Clark and what she really does as an artist. So if you don't mind, indulge us here. I'm going to play this clip here. And it's from that TEDx uh, Montreal performance presentation that you did. Check this out. Mo Clark, TEDx Montreal. rest of that you got to go check that out on youtube we could vibe all night on on mo clark's music so i wanted to show that clip just quickly because i think it it helps paint a picture of the loop station that you use the poetry that you use the voice the sounds that you use and how you share that with the audience and man there's so much to you mo clark if you want to do you have more time to to hang out with me yeah, I think I, I think I could probably do like another 15 or so. Okay, awesome. Just slightly melting here. But okay, I'm- yeah, no doubt. Me too. So, all right. So in that presentation performance you did, I'll ask one question. I'll play one more short clip. It's like 30 seconds mm-hmm. and we'll wrap it up. But uh, in that presentation performance, you said that you transform solitude into story voice your experience through words music and sound and this is what kept you alive 
So I wanted to know what part of your story were you sharing when you said that? Um, wow, I, I barely remember now. That was like, <laughs> I think I did that performance in 2012. 2012, yeah. Um, and it's funny because originally when they invited me to be a part of TEDx, like it's, it's not a paid gig, you know? Um, they just wanted me to perform for 10 minutes and then kind of like scooch off the stage. Like they wanted me to just sort of be the artistic, you know, kind of interlude. And I was like, no, I want a full 18 minutes. Like I want to speak too, you know, like right. what I have to say is also important. And so I kind of made that request and they responded and I'm really grateful that they did. Um, Cause I think often, you know, people take the song and the clip but then they don't really get as much of like the life and the story. Right. And I think that, you know, creative people's ideas matter too. Um, artists' Definitely. ideas matter. Um, I think there's a lot of stories that yeah. become music and poetry and songs. Uh, that one that you played the clip from, that was a piece called Intersecting Circles. It's on my first album. And I wrote that back in, I think, 2008, maybe, wow. for the CBC Poetry Face-Off. And, um, and so I wrote that piece uh, basically speaking about my Métis relatives and my Métis lineage and trying to kind of use, again, like that Indigenous imagination um, to poetically uh, create a story. Okay, I'm going to play one more clip and we'll wrap this up if you don't mind, because I really wanted people to be able to witness the multidisciplinary range that you have. I mean, that was a really, you know, loop pedal using your voice, you know, making a, a really cool beat, I would say. And that poetry is almost like rap at the same time. It was really mm -hmm. cool. But you also have an incredible voice. So let me share this next clip with our audience and yourself and uh, let us know. I was, I was in love with this track here. Yeah. It's this called I Find My Grace. Yeah. And I'd love to just hear that experience and we'll wrap up with this. Oh, I find grace in the simple things that flow between the oar and beam oh i find grace in the simple things that live within the waking dream oh i find joy in the smile you hold in the love you keep, in the letting go, oh, I find joy in the light that shines and it winks an eye when we walk by. Oh my goodness. Listen, as soon as that drum kicks in, you're gone. Mm. You are completely in. Mm -hmm. Such a flawless 
performance. So tell us like, what was that experience? Like, I really wish we had more time. I'm going to rephrase this because if you didn't know, like your project back to where my heart belongs was a intergenerational songwriting project that you did connecting with the land. And then your latest album within was a concept of an archeological dig of unburied legacies and your track calling was inspired by a three-day fast that you did in the Rocky Mountains. Like there were so many things I was hoping we can get into, but I think that, you know, that song, I Find My Grace is such a graceful way that we can finish this, this No Blueprint session. So share with us how that song came to be and what it means to you. That song, I like, I Find Grace, it's... um. It is. It's like it's it's the grace coming through and in and it's that as you know, one of my elders, Bob Smoker, used to always say it's the channeling and the funneling, you know, mm. it's like the the focusing of like the mind, body, spirit, heart. And um, I was actually out west or out on the East Coast and it was kind of a, a rainy, misty, cloudy, gray Moncton day out in New Brunswick visiting a friend and um, I was just walking around it was kind of dusk and the song started to come through and I went home and I grabbed my little zoom recording device and the whole thing beginning and that entire song um, almost in that exact um, frequency the language uh, the the you know structure wow. and then uh, I you know was back here and I was working actually with this amazing pianist Ohini Bill uh, who you know was one of the awesome members of the community vibe collective here in Montreal and um, we were invited to perform in this intimate sky event organized by another local artist uh, Jason Selman and so that I brought that song forward and Ohini totally planted that really beautiful gospel piano. Yeah. Um, and so then when I brought it into the studio with uh, the Bean Trio, who's in that video that you see, they, they're the trio of jazz musicians who recorded on my album. Incredible. Um, we recreated that vibe and that music. And I've gotten so many emails and so many messages from complete strangers um, saying that, you know, that music has basically been like a site of refuge for Mm. them to land into, to go through grief um, that, you know, they brought it into their dying relatives hospital bedroom and they've played it for them. Wow. People have gotten married to that song. Um, So it, I think it's like, you know, it's the grace that kind of can come through us when we are open and calling was the same thing, you know, it was like from beginning to end, I just like jotted on my right. piano in their cold ass basement in the suburbs of Calgary after this three day fast. And again, I was able to record it and the whole song. So, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for just being a recipient of whatever that, whatever that song, whatever that music, whatever those lyrics are. Yeah. Yeah, like and the pre-songwriting, the yeah. to where my heart belongs. That's going to be an album, so that's my next right. album. Oh, so, that's the next one coming out. Yeah, that's the next okay. one that's, that's going to be coming out. And so, amazing. Actually, next week or so, I'm hoping to do like a sneak release kind of single Whoa. of one of the songs. They're all in Nehiawe Win. They're all in Plains Cree, written and composed with uh, two of my 
elder auntie uncle Cheryl Rondell and Joseph Natow Howe and mm. again working with Marino Vasquez amazing local musician and so we've only got five tracks recorded and this spring summer was supposed to be you know recording in a barn in Belgium and oh, maybe wow. going up to Greenland and working with this awesome producer Jan but we'll see it'll get done when it gets done and amazing. you know life has a way of of working out so yeah. yeah, I'm excited to, to so exciting. Like I I really wanted to dive into that project. I mean, we're not gonna have time now because you know, my grandmother attended residential schools at Fort Capel in Saskatchewan. And so Ooh. yeah, you wrote you wrote uh your some of the songs that you wrote was in yeah. Capel Valley in Saskatchewan. So I wanted to, you know, hear a little bit of your experience there. We and- actually visited the site. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. School, like right along the train track and all they have left is the frame of the door. Mm. Um, but the rest of it has been demolished. And I have, I have photos of when we went to visit there. Wow. Um, in Katepwa. So yeah, Kapel Valley coming back. That's where we began the, uh, the process and the project as like a land-based language reclamation, learning, songwriting, creation process. Because exactly. you know, my auntie Cheryl was like, if you're going to learn a language, you should learn it through a means and, and, and through a process that mm. is meaningful to you. That you makes know? sense. That so makes sense. The song that made the most sense to me. See, because that was, that kind of ties in a little bit to that TEDx Montreal is like you were saying how you turn environment into landscape and landscape into sound right and how poetry is archaeology it's the artifacts of the experience and without the artifacts how can you trace the lineage of who you are and where you come from and so i wanted to you know briefly dang i said that that? oh you said that i'm telling you i I was really deep back then and that's because you've evolved you evolved in so many ways it's amazing and that's why i wanted to kind of i know i said i was going to wrap this up but i just really think that it's important for our our audience and our listeners to know that a lot of the music you've created has come from your life experience and your relationship to the land and your your teachings you've received from your aunties and these elders like i think it's so significant and so when a song like calling comes out and you perform like i was going to show the clip of you performing calling it's just so incredible and as a multidisciplinary artist your stories come out in such beautiful ways and how you use the loop pedal and you bring in different orchestras and different people who play different instruments is really an embodiment of these artifacts that you've discovered in your life. Mm -hmm. And I just find it so amazing. So ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from Mo Clark, an incredible multidisciplinary artist doing incredible things. Stay tuned for her upcoming album, Back to Where My Heart Belongs. Um, it's, it's been a great time connecting with you and, and hearing your truth and your story. So thank you for being here, Mo Clark. Appreciate you a lot. Uh, hi, hi, Justin. Thanks so much for your, your generous way of, you know, weaving these, these pieces together. And I just, I mirror back everything you've said about me, you know, like, I think it's, it's really beautiful to be in these uh, conversations and to be invited into these moments of exchange and sharing. And I think it just really reiterates the importance of, you know, us coming together um, in this way of visiting 
connecting, sharing, you know, and, and riffing off one another and, and getting inspired by one another. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you're hosting these sessions because I think it's really important and it's just a nice, easygoing, kind of approachable way to 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 relate, you know, and to, yeah. to learn. So, exactly. and I think, you know, for me too, it's like, oh, right, I'm being asked things and it helps me to kind of remember as mm. well, you know? It's amazing. I think there's, there's a gap in the industry i would say in general to hear stories of successful indigenous people positive stories who've done it the right way you know but i think to hear the stories of such incredible successful accomplished you know with a broad range of experience to hear their stories and to to kind of you know, celebrate them is so important. I think that's one way we can inspire the future generation to be like, look, there's incredible artists and, and indigenous people out there doing amazing things. And so I think that's just another important aspect to this whole No Blueprint series. So thanks again for be being part of that. It's incredible. I'm so grateful. So thank you. And uh, that'll be it. So wash day. Bye bye. Take care.